listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. I'm so glad you've been able to join us again for this episode of Let the Bible Speak. It is the burden of our hearts that we bring the Word of God to your ears week by week, and trusting that God will use His Word to encourage your souls. And if you do not know Christ, that He would use it even unto the saving of your souls. One of the greatest needs for the church today is to rediscover the glory of the gospel of Christ. Churches have allowed themselves to be distracted with all manner of social endeavour and all manner of false teaching. And it is the burden of this programme and it is the burden of the Lord that the glory of the gospel would be treasured in the hearts of every child of God. I want to read to you some words uh, from 1 Timothy chapter 1. We continue in our studies of the word of God. It's 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1. And let's read together from the verse number 12. Here is the word of God. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, here Paul speaking, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the Only Wise God, be honour and glory for ever and ever. Amen. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for the Gospel, the good news of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. As we contemplate these verses today, may you work in our hearts that we would treasure the great privilege of knowing and being able to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bless the word to our hearts today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It is the great need for the church today to rediscover the glory of the gospel. In that regard, false teaching is so tremendously dangerous. Paul, in this opening chapter to Timothy, has been highlighting the danger of false teaching. Those who are swerving away, erring from the truth of God. Those who have a desire to be teaching but are misusing the law and using it to teach false doctrine. Paul returns to false doctrine in verse number 18 of this first chapter. He charges Timothy uh, that he would war a good warfare that he would hold faith and a good conscience, which some false teachers have put away and have made shipwreck. He gives those words of counsel at the end of this chapter. And so the chapter opens with false teaching, and it ends with false teaching, 
And there is this section in the middle, verses 12 through 17. And in this section, there are different views as to how this fits in the structure of the wider epistle. Is it a simple diversion as he reflects upon the glorious gospel? Or is it not more likely that it is Paul unveiling truths that the false teachers put to the sword? Is it not a time for Paul to defend his own ministry, to defend his standing in Christ, and then to defend the truth that he presents in Christ? Truth is the greatest opponent to error. There is a place for what is known as polemics in Christian ministry. There is a place to name Hymenaeus and an Alexander. There is a place to expose, demonstrate falsehood and error. But such a polemic ministry must not be the dominant ministry of the minister of God's word. They must emphasize the importance of truth. They must proclaim truth. And as truth is proclaimed, so that wards off error and it builds up people in their confidence of the gospel. And so Paul, he uses himself, he says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. In contrast to the false teachers, Paul puts himself before the church and says, I am a faithful minister. I've been appointed by Christ. And that leads to the first thing that I want to consider in this program today. And that is that God's true messengers are God-appointed. They are not self-appointed. False teachers have not been appointed by God to the ministry. That was true in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 23 verse 21 says, I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. These were false prophets. They were teaching error, and the Lord says that they were not sent of God. A self-appointed, ungoverned ministry is very damaging to the work of God. Paul manifests in his prayer of thankfulness that his position and privilege is one given to him by God. And I thank Christ Jesus my Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Now there is an extraordinary sense. Now there is a sense in which this is extraordinarily the case for Paul. He was met by Christ on the road to Damascus, commissioned by Christ on that time. But the Bible does show us that there is an ordinary calling for the Christian minister, and that ordinary calling is no less a work of God. How does God appoint his messengers? How does God appoint pastors and ministers? This is a very important topic because if we understood this more clearly, I believe it would be a defense, at least to some part, against false doctrine. We have a spirit abroad in the church today than that men feel the right to uh, take to themselves the duty of gospel preachers and gospel ministers. But the Bible gives us some very clear directions as to the appointment of men to the gospel ministry. The first thing we should see is that God implants a desire. There is a burden in a man being called of God, an inability to do anything else. 
Uh, I remember speaking to a pastor when I was 17 years old and felt a burden to the gospel ministry. And the pastor very wisely said to me, if you can do anything else, do it. And he was not seeking to discourage the call of God in my life, but he was seeking to uh, teach and demonstrate to me uh, that if I was called of God to minister, then I could not do anything else. That the burden would be so intense that I would come to the realization that I, I couldn't take on any other profession or vocation. Now, of course, the desire for gospel ministry can be a false desire. It can be a desire for man's glory and praise. It can be a desire for some false concept of rest. It can be a desire to spend time reading books and studying theology. For some, it may be a desire for prominence. Verse 7 of this chapter describes those who desire to be teachers. But though the desire may be false, the false desire does not deny the true. For God gives his prophets the spirit, Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. A burning heart for the glory of God in the proclamation of the gospel is prerequisite in every gospel minister. Whatever the response of the hearers, whether they reject or accept, there is a burden within the heart of a man to preach the gospel. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. That is something that you want to see in your pastor. A burden to preach. That preaching is not a, a weariness, it's not a, an ordeal, a duty, it is a blessed privilege. And so God appoints men, and as he appoints them, he implants this desire. In the same sense, God enables, in his strength, those men to labor as gospel ministers. He provides gifts. I think of Christ's encouragement to the first disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It is Christ's function to make men able ministers. Paul faced the daunting task of ministry and realizing that they were not sufficient, he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament. Paul uses that language in this first letter to Timothy. In the verse 12 again he says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me. Men who are called are men who are gifted. Now that gift will vary in its degree. There'll be some men who are, at least to the human eye, more gifted than others. But there is a gifting of men By the Lord, the Lord gives men the ability to study, to understand, and to explain the gospel. Whenever Charles Spurgeon, the gospel minister in London, whenever men were approaching him with a burden, he would always ask them to demonstrate their gift in terms of how they had served in the past. And Spurgeon often would give young men the task of laboring in the Sunday school ministry teaching children, because he understood that if a man could communicate the gospel simply and effectively to children, then they were demonstrating the ability to communicate the gospel to the world. God implants a desire. God enables that implanted desire to function into a fruitful ministry. And God, he uses the church to confirm that call and to confirm that gift. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and the verse 14, Paul says to Timothy, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, 
There's the gift given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. And that word presbytery refers to the elders. It indicates the function of church leaders in appointing men, confirming their call and confirming their gift. We will see later on in First Timothy chapter 3 that there are various qualifications that are given for those who would labor as leaders in the work of God. And so the church is used to confirm a man's character and a man's giftedness. Even Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13, they were sent and set apart by the church for that ministry. And so God's true messengers are God-appointed. They are not self-appointed. And one of the marks of a false teacher is that they appoint themselves to their ministry. But let me encourage you. Pray that God would raise up such men in our day. Pray that God would put within within men's hearts a burden to preach the gospel, a fire that no man can put out, that they would be so convicted of the truth of the gospel that nothing will stop them proclaiming Christ to a lost world. It is my burden that the ministry of the gospel would always be seen as a calling of God, not simply another occupation for men to take upon themselves. God's true ministers are God-appointed. And secondly today, God's true message is God-exalting. The gospel that Paul is entrusted with is the gospel of God. He refers to it in verse number 11. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Paul comes to expound that gospel in the words that follow. He describes it in these terms. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. The gospel that Paul preaches is a gospel that he received directly from Christ. Verse 11 again says that the gospel was committed to his trust or entrusted to him. Galatians 1, Paul makes the claim that he received the gospel directly from Christ himself. That during the time in the wilderness in Damascus, the Lord himself taught Paul the truths of the gospel. All false teaching exalts the work of man to some degree. The true gospel highlights the work of God in every aspect of salvation. The true gospel is all of grace and all of Christ. Let me quickly summarize the truths that arise in these verses. And each of these things uh, could of themselves occupy a great deal of time in our attention. But note that in this gospel, we see God's appointed person. The Lord is mentioned here. Christ Jesus came into the world. Salvation is all of God. It's not the work of man, it is the work of God. Only God could perform the miracle of the incarnation. Christ Jesus came into the world. Note the language used here. He did not begin to exist in Bethlehem. Jesus was the name given to him by his parents, Mary and Joseph. They were told to call him Jesus by the angel. And his name Jesus meant that he came as a saviour. But Jesus, in his humanity, is born in Bethlehem. But as the Messiah, he is the Son of God who came into the world on the occasion of the incarnation. The Son of God 
is eternal. And the Son of God took to himself a true humanity through the miracle of the virgin birth as Jesus Christ is conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Only God can perform that miracle. Salvation is all of God. And Christ Jesus came that he would die. He came to die on the cross for sinners. And only God could work out that transaction whereby sin is dealt with on the cross so that sinners can be forgiven justly, fairly, as the punishment of their sin is put upon Christ. On the tree of Calvary, the Father forsakes the Son, and the Father punishes the Son for the sins of his people. That's a work of God. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and he came to save them by dying for them on the cross of Calvary. God's appointed person is the Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. God's announced purpose is to save sinners. He came into the world to save sinners, or literally, sinners to save. Note he came to save and not to help. So many have a mind uh, that we are weak as humanity, but we're not broken down in sin. But the Bible teaches absolute total depravity, and that we need rescued, we need saved, not simply helped. And we are sinners who need saved, Sinners who cannot save themselves. We're guilty before God. We have no right before God. And what we need is the amazing grace of God that comes in and through the person of Jesus Christ. God's appointed person is the Lord Jesus. God's announced purpose is to save sinners. And God's amazing process is that sinners are saved. Paul presents himself as an example of such a sinner. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Paul regarded himself as the chief of sinners. He understood himself to be a blasphemer and a persecutor, injuring the church of Christ. But he also presents himself as a pattern, as a type, as an illustration of all who believe. It says in verse 16, that he would be a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. And so we learn much from the example of the Apostle Paul, how he was saved. As Paul thought about the subject of grace, he truly saw himself as the first and foremost sinner. That was his opinion, and it's not our task to argue with him. He is in a pattern of the state of mind that all the saved come to. No one else knows my heart, I know my heart. I know the depth of my sinfulness. And so the sense of being a chief of sinner, well, that's how we all feel at times. We're all conscious of the depth of our sin. We, we know ourselves more than we know others. But of course, Paul's sins were of a particular magnitude. He was one who had much light in the word of God and sinned greatly. And so it may well be the case. That Paul arguing for himself to be the chief of sinners is manifesting to us that we all must come to that conviction. Verse 15 says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now it may well be that the clause at the end of whom I am chief is included with the faithful saying. 
And if that is the case, Paul may be saying to us, repeat after me. In other words, Paul is saying to us all that we must confess our personal sin. Remember the law in verse 9 is said to be not for the righteous. Christ came not for the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. And we think of that in the parable in Luke chapter 18. The man in the temple, and there was one who was greatly convinced of his own righteousness. And the Pharisee would say, I'm, I'm not like others. But the tax collector, the publican, oh, they knew they were the chief of sinners. And even that publican would pray to God, have mercy on me, literally the sinner, the chief sinner. In studying for this portion, I read a revision of the hymn Amazing Grace. You know the story, Amazing Grace, written by John Newton, a man guilty of of really tremendously gross sins in the slave trade. And he would say, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Oh, the modern revision went like this. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved and strengthened me. That's true in part, but that was not Newton's experience. He would say that saved a wretch like me. Today, we don't want to think of our sinful state. Today, we don't want to think of the depth of our depravity. But grace is amazing because it saves wretches. Not because it puts a final polish on nice people, so said one writer. What great truth there is there. Grace is amazing because of the the depths that it raises us from. Grace is amazing because of what it does in transforming our lives. The sinner enjoys God's patience. Paul's a pattern that in him Christ Jesus might show forth all long suffering. Despite his rebellion, God is patient toward him. What a patient God we have. God to be patient with Saul of Tarsus in all of his wickedness is a God who is patient with sinners. And so for all of us, there was a time when we were not saved. There was a time when we did not love God, and yet in those times God showed us patience. I often wonder, did the church pray for Saul? No point in praying for a sinner like him, perhaps they could have argued. Really? God was able to deal with Saul Tarsus, and even in his wickedness, God is being patient towards Saul, working in his soul to the point that he'd bring him unto himself. How many of us have given up on particular sinners? But God is a God of patience, and the sinner enjoys God's patience. The sinner then receives God's mercy, verse 13. I obtained mercy, said Paul. Mercy from God. We sin in ignorance. Paul says that I did it ignorantly in unbelief. That draws on the Old Testament concept of the sin of ignorance. It's not an excuse for sin, but it shows how God has mercy on such sinners. Mercy. God does not treat us as we deserve. Only God has the right to show mercy to sinners. But praise his name, he does delight to show mercy to sinners. And the sinner then responds. The grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. Paul describes his response. He comes to believe and he comes to love. False teachers, oh, they deceive people they take them away from faith in Christ and love for God but grace being poured out over us 
we respond in love and affection for Christ Jesus. Faith is the hand that receives the gift of God. In sin, the hand is clenched. In sin, the hand is tightly closed and refuses to receive the gift of God that is in Christ Jesus. But God, in his mercy, opens our fingers, places the gift, and he closes our fingers over the gift. It is by grace alone that we believe the gospel and the glory goes to God alone. We've been thinking about this heading of how God's true message is God-exalting. It is so because the gospel is the truth of God's appointed person who came to do God's announced purpose to work in sinners God's amazing process that as we enjoy God's patience and mercy and grace we come to receive the gospel. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. What a blessing it is and I, I urge you as you hear the gospel today believe the gospel unto life eternal. Believe it. Paul is a pattern to all of us which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. There is life for a look at the crucified one. There is life, dear sinner, for thee. Don't doubt God's mercy. And don't give up on deep-dyed sinners. Don't give up on those who persistently reject the gospel. Our response to the gospel is one of worship. Paul ends this section, Now unto the King Eternal. Immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honoured and glory forever and ever. Amen. The glorious gospel displays the glory of God. And I say again, it is the great need of the church to recapture the glory of the gospel in our minds. It produces doxology in our hearts. We praise God when we contemplate the gospel. And so when you think about what God has done in Christ and done for you, can you praise his name today? The eternal, invisible God shows his wisdom in the gospel so that all the honour and glory goes to his name. Let me repeat those words in closing. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Almighty God, take your word. We thank you for the glory of the gospel of Christ. And as... He has announced to sinners over this program. Use it in their lives, we pray. Save the lost and strengthen your people in their confidence of Christ. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.